Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, there's a new release candidate for Phoenix. So we're looking at 1.7.0 is the release that's being primed and release candidate.1 came out. So this includes a couple of enhancements, but a lot more bug fixes. Of the new enhancements, one thing that I thought was interesting is it adds tailwind.install and esbuild.install to mix setup. So maybe a few less steps when you're running that mix setup stuff. Speaking of which, Phoenix Live, you got a couple of little small releases, mostly bug fixes. Since the last time we recorded, there were three, three minor releases. So the most notable change was to fix some Firefox shenanigans where Firefox would kill the WebSocket on a page navigation, but somehow allowed LiveView to reconnect back to the server before it committed to transitioning the page and killing the JavaScript thread. So if you care about your Firefox users, maybe you should update. A couple other fixes, like fixing some bugs around Phoenix no feedback, Phoenix disconnected, some page title stuff, a bug on slots when you're passing multiple slot entries, and fixing an external anchor link while unloading the socket. If any of that is like ringing a bell of a weird bug that you've been experiencing, just give it a quick upgrade and see if that helps. And next up, Andrea Leopardi published his second video where he works through the protohackers.com challenges, which is these network-based challenges, but using Elixir. So in the latest one, which is day two, he goes through parsing binary protocols and uses Elixir's excellent binary pattern matching to do it. And that's like one of the superpowers of Elixir and Erlang, you know, is this binary pattern matching, especially when you're implementing network protocols and things like that. So should be a cool one. There's a lot of that low-level stuff where it's like, well, the first five bytes are going to be this. And when this particular byte is that, you know, that means that <laughs> yada, yada, yada. And file formats, too, uh, also have like a header up there. So like a GIF has a certain magic number. I think that's what that's called, magic number at the beginning. And so you can pattern match on the first eight bytes. And if it equals this, it's a GIF. You can do some neato things with that. Love that trick. All right, next up, Open now supports SQLite 3. That sounds interesting. It's landed in Maine. Uh, so as, as the time of recording, it's not yet in a tagged release. But if you're feeling adventurous, you should take it for a spin and report some uh, issues or other findings that you might have. Open supporting SQLite 3. That's probably going to be good news for for you guys, Mark, with um, LiteFS and SQLite support and all that jazz. Yeah, I am really wanting to play more with SQLite and Phoenix and with the LightFS, you can have clustered and automatically handle some of that replication. And I just kind of want to play with that and see what that's like. It sounds really cool. Yeah. The other scenario is like like Raspberry Pis. I don't know why I would want a Raspberry Pi running jobs, but I mean, that would be kind of cool. You might destroy your little SD card with all the <laughs> constant checks or polls on your jobs, but that'd be pretty cool. And next up, time travel with live view events. This is a fun idea. So you can install an accompanying Chrome extension to change the live view state over time. So if you've ever seen like React Redux, where you have these commands that are issued, and you're able to record these commands, like which command happened in which sequence, then you can kind of scroll back in time and undo those events or replay them up to a point. 
then that's what this is doing or trying to do with Live View. So you can check out the repo and the demo video really kind of helps you understand what it is. But it's a very interesting idea where you could say using open telemetry events, we're already wired up to be able to get the events. What if we were able to record those and replay them or undo them in order and kind of travel back in time? So that's kind of a fun idea. If you're debugging something that's state related, you can just pop back to previous states and watch the transitions happen again. So it's a cool idea. It's especially helpful for all those things that happen too quickly to detect with your eye, right? You see a flash on the on the screen or something, not not a message flash, but like just some content shift or some content flash. Yeah, it's hard to hard to do that sometimes in, in real time. So you have to travel back in time. I, I love it. I got to try it out. We got some Hexdocs news. There's a couple of uh, tips that we found. First, Chris Gregori uh, shared a post about setting up a Google Chrome shortcut to get to Elixir documentation quickly. I've actually done this before. I've actually done this three ways, right? So the one that Chris mentions is that you can take advantage of Chrome's built-in feature for custom search engines. So you can set up like a prefix, like in this example, HD for like hex docs. And so if you if you type in HD space, Chrome will start to forward the rest of that query over to like a pattern over to hex docs. And so if you type in like HD ecto, it'll go straight to the ecto documentation, which is helpful. You can go further than that, right? That's that's if you just wanted to go jump directly to the documentation, but you can also like guess the search parameter. And so you can do like at ecto, it goes directly to the ecto documentation, but it also puts in the query parameters to like find the function that you're looking for. That's a couple of additional ways. So I've, those are the three I have is jumping directly to Hexdocs, jumping to Ecto, and then the third one is EctoSQL because they're, they're separate. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but yeah, nice tip. Thanks, thanks, Chris, for sharing that. And the next Hexdoc tip was one I saw from Ben von Polheim. I didn't know this was already there. So this is already, if you've got Elixir installed on a somewhat recent version, then you already have this. It's mixhex.docs. And with that, there's a couple different options and you can do offline and say the package. And one of those that I use a lot is Phoenix Live View. So I can have an offline version of Phoenix Live View, which then when I go type it later, it'll automatically pop it up, use my cached local version and open up in a local browser. My first thought was, hey, if I'm going to be doing any travel where I'm wanting to do some hacking on the plane or a long train ride or something where I don't have Wi-Fi, then that could be a great way to be able to keep hacking and get access to the docs that I'm using all the time. Next up, we got the, I'm going to say it, Erlef. <laughs> I've been told that's not the right way. The Erlang Ecosystem Foundation has their own GitHub action called Setup Beam. If you're using it, it might be time to upgrade because a new version just released 1.15.1. So we've got links to the release tag, which has more details. But the basic idea here is that it's updating some of the GitHub, the, the internal GitHub action uh, libraries that it depends on to prevent some 403 errors from GitHub. So if you've been getting some weird CI errors every once in a while and a retry kind of works, maybe maybe update your setup beam uh, action here and that that'll that'll make things a little bit more reliable for you. And next up, Sean Moriarty released a new library that's part of the NX family. It's called EX Face. <laughs> it's EX underscore F A I S S. I'm going to pronounce it Face though. Face five. Fa- 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 <laughs> <A-S>. <laughs> yeah. 
So thankfully, he wrote a blog post to accompany this that explains what the heck this is for and why it's named this. And so from his blog post, I'm just going to read this extract where he says, FACE, F-A-I-S-S, which stands for Facebook AI Similarity Search, is a library for efficient similarity search and clustering of dense vectors. So this is all around uh, machine learning, maybe, but like it's the ve- it's vector searches, right? So it's it's around finding things that are otherwise hard to, rather than doing a straight up text search. So Face offers extensive customization of indices, as well as GPU based algorithms, and has been proven to work at scales of one trillion vectors. So Face natively supports Python and C++, but now you can take advantage of Face in Elixir with EX Face. So that is pretty cool for those people that are in that area where you have a lot of data that you want to be able to quickly index and search through, and that might be a good option for you. Man, the amount of times I've needed to search uh, clusters of dense vectors, oh man, I could have used this. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> I, I know, but it, it comes from Facebook, so it, it must be good, right? <laughs> okay, and then wrapping up here, a couple of corrections out there to two people. Alexi, dear Alexi, Alexia Finito Mata, I've, we've talked about your library a couple of times here, and I confused you with a core team member also named Alexi. You are two different people. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're a core team member in my heart. So there, there you go. <laughs> maybe, maybe your core, core team, I don't, I don't know. But anyway, there's two different Alexis out there. Core team member Alexi and the Finito Mata Alexi, who's also done a lot of other great stuff in the Elixir community, not just Finito Mata. Anyway, sorry, quick apology. And I wanted to clear that error so that way uh, other folks that have talked, heard me talk about Finito Mata don't confuse you as well. <laughs> and last up was just a fun little Phoenix success story that I, I thought was fun. People could check out. It's a Twitter thread, and I'll have a link to that in the show notes. But summary is, they say, and I, I would pronounce their name, but I would I don't know that it's pronounceable. So I'll just say, you can check a link in the show notes. But in about 100 lines of Elixir code and about 50 lines implementing a hook and some logic in JS, they were able to make an interactive map of the whole US displaying sales data per day on a mouse over event. And it loads 1.1 million records and crunches it all in less than 500 milliseconds and saying, not bad, Phoenix, not bad. What I thought was cool is like, this is using SVGs with live view and doing all of this as a proof of concept in about four hours worth of work. So there's a little Twitter thread kind of detailing some of it and showing off like what this looks like. But as a MVP, being able to build something out that fast that powerful as a proof of concept, like that's really cool. And then someone followed up and asked, well, what were backend we're using for this 1.1 million records? And they explained, oh, that was Snowflake. And that's where they had the sales data and everything that was being loaded from. Anyway, that's cool. I just love that people are sharing some of their Phoenix successes. And I'm happy we can share some with you. And that's it for the news. Elixir and Phoenix are incredible. They make it possible to quickly build highly resilient and reliable systems capable of operating at incredible scale. Fly.io is a great place to host Elixir apps. You can deploy your app to multiple regions around the world with a private network linking them all together so your app can cluster and globally do some incredible Phoenix magic. Give your users a more responsive UI while writing less code and moving the app closer to your users without needing an ops team. Check out fly.io for your next Elixir app.
Today, we're being joined by our special guest, Brom Verberg. Brom, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me again. Yes, so we had you with us back in episode 64 when we were talking about some OTP certificate problems that were going on with the Beam at that time. And you have a lot more experience with the Beam as a whole ecosystem with the Erlang side as well. And uh, we were leaning on you pretty heavily there for helping us understand that. And we're happy to have you back today because you are currently serving as a chair on the EEF or the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation Security Working Group. And you authored, or at least were heavily involved with, the Secure Coding and Deployment Hardening Guidelines. And we would love to understand more about what's going on with the Security Working Group, what they do, what the missions are, and also just helping us understand what resources are available for us as developers so we can make sure to take advantage of these things that the Security Working Group and people like yourself are actually creating and making available for us. So before we do that, I'd love to hear a little bit more about you. Like, where do you live and what kind of work are you doing? Well, so since last time we spoke, I have relocated back to the Netherlands. So that's where I live now. I still work at BlueCode, a payments platform for in-store and online payments in Austria and Germany. And my position, I'm, uh, I'm head of software security. So it is... My job to make sure that the platform doesn't have gaping uh, security vulnerabilities that will uh, cause people to 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 walk out of shops without paying. So and yeah, we're doing a lot of Erlang Elixir work. So that's uh, it, this combines my own interest in in the Beam ecosystem and and in security. In addition to my professional uh, duties, I also get to contribute back to the community through open source, but also in the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation, as you as you said. Brom, with your work, uh, you said how you're in charge of the security aspects there. I'm, I'm curious, like, what approach do you take to helping your team? Uh, is it like you are performing code reviews and looking for security things, you have automated stuff set up, or is it more around education and you're teaching the team, these are the things to look out for. These are the common problems. Like, how do you approach that from a work environment helping your team? Okay, well, we're a pretty small team. So in the, in practice, sometimes I just end up implementing security-sensitive functionality myself. Obviously, I would love for everyone in the team to increase their their awareness and be able to do any of these these things so yes we do uh, I, I do code reviews I'm involved in the design because the security doesn't start when you start coding it starts earlier so I work with the product teams as well I work with the people that uh, maintain the infrastructure the, the the DevOps aspect so because obviously a lot of the security of the solution depends on cloud infrastructure. So it's it's a range of things, and then I also keep an eye on you know security news in general, specific vulnerabilities that might affect us. Like I said, I, I I try to not just focus on internal education, but I, I some of the work that I do in in trying to promote security internally, I try to also take to the to the broader community and. If we can like, publish some new resources that also benefit others, then uh, you know, we as a, as, a, as a team benefit from, from that as well, because it will draw others in, others will contribute their own uh, thoughts, their own ideas. 
and that way everyone everyone benefits yeah i just want to mention like you talked about like how you're not just involved with the coding aspect but also the devops side too because i just think you know how many times have we heard just even recently where someone has like a public s3 bucket that should not be shared right and like that's just part of the hosting it's not even part of the code yes well sometimes i wish we didn't have to rely so much on all these other moving parts. I can mentally kind of grasp a Phoenix application and understand where, where I need to you know, pay attention to security aspects. But obviously, nowadays, this is not really an option anymore, right? You, you're going to have to put in load balancers and, and CDNs and other maybe lambdas and, and, and integrate with single sign-on providers. And all of these touch points are additional liabilities that you need to also consider like is, is this integration secure did, did i you know do i parse all the headers correctly because it's not enough that everything works it's it, it should work but it should also be resilient against the kind of attacks that you're expecting through this through this particular channel and the more services you string together the the, the more complicated it becomes to 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 have that confidence you, you, to get to get to the point of confidence where you can say that this is this is secure i've covered everything i thought of everything it's it's at some point it's almost impossible to fully grasp what you're what you have built well i would love to turn to talk more about your work with the security working group one how did you end up getting involved with the security working group so that's part of the eef the erling ecosystem foundation and i remember when the eef was first founded and they talked about these different groups that were being created. So how did you get involved with this one being focused on security? Yes, well, when I heard the announcement, it was, when was it? Three years ago or something like that. There was a lot of buzz at conferences. Jose and Francesco and others were going to conferences and introducing this new foundation. And there was a list of working groups that were supposed to be founded as part of the foundation. And I immediately checked the list and I noticed that there was no security working group. So I reached out to Francesco and I said, look, there has, we have to have a security working group. This is important. This is an opportunity to, to get some like-minded people together, especially considering all the sponsors. Like there are some big companies out there that, uh, that are sponsoring the foundation that presumably have a, a vested interest in, in, in building stuff on top of the beam, and they should care about security too. So let's get those people together. And it turns out I was not the only one because Maxime Fadero of, of uh, WhatsApp had approached Francesco with exactly the same idea. So Francesco brought us together and we decided to found the security working group. We got a few other people in. This was the first community initiative to create a new working group. So once we got started, we got together a couple of times and we started to to try and figure out how can we, what can we do as a group and, and how can we produce value for the community. And one of the things we realized was that there's, there's a lack of documentation. And so this was one of the first things we, we did. And the output of that first tangible thing that we that we produced was the secure coding and deployment hardening hardening guidelines let's go through some some of the details on there i think or at least tell us what's what's going on well first before we get into that i i I need you to help me solve uh, something for me i've been saying earl f this entire time is that wrong or is it eef what what's the right way (laughs) 
the the foundation is called it, or the, the the logo shows EEF. Um, I think the reason the domain name is REF.org is simply because of domain name availability. <laughs> okay. So I call it EEF, but I suppose uh, you know as long as people know it, what you mean. Okay. All right. Good. Well, that helps me with some of my uh, insecurity. Uh, so now we can <laughs> move forward. So one of the first things that you guys did was create some of this documentation about how to create secure applications. Give me a high level view. What what are the kinds of things that you cover in this guide? And where is it to? Where can I find it? Okay. So f- first of all, the, the, obviously the link will be in the show notes, but it's hosted on the, so the GitHub pages of the EEF security working group. Um, we're looking at maybe other hosting possibilities uh, as we produce more documents because this is maybe a bit hard to find and we would love for this to be maybe co-located with the Erlang documentation or uh, Elixir documentation or at least be linked from there. There's there's definitely room for improvement in terms of discoverability. But anyway, here we are talking about it, so hopefully this will help get the word out there. We discovered it. <laughs> there are two aspects, really, two chapters. One is secure coding and one is deployment hardening. And those are basically two activities in a secure software development lifecycle. They are pretty well defined as activities. And that's also why this, the scope may be a bit, a bit narrow if you look at it. So secure coding is an activity early on in a, in a secure software development lifecycle when the as a, as a developer, you're sitting at your keyboard and you... you looking at a blank page and you start writing code, right? Um, you have a design that someone else, maybe someone else produced it, or maybe you produced that you came up with the design yourself, or maybe you're just, you know, flying by the seat of your pants and you just started coding right away. I do that often. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so either way, as you are in the editor, you may be reaching for certain functions in the standard library, certain idioms from the, of the in the language, and some may be better than others, objectively or subjectively better from a security perspective. And this is what secure coding is really about. Going through these secure coding guidelines is supposed to give you, help you develop an intuition for what are the good patterns and what are the bad patterns. And the reason it is singled out as, as a separate activity is because it's, it's very low-hanging fruit generally. It's very easy to just say, okay, don't do this, do that. And it happens very early in the software development process where it's still very cheap to think, fix things. So if you're in your editor, you type something and then you say, ah, I read something about this. I shouldn't be doing this. I should do, do something else. Then the bug never even gets introduced. The vulnerability never even gets introduced. Whereas other like, secure software development tools and processes, they tend to focus on fixing things later after they've been introduced. But that's obviously more expensive if you have to come in and bring in a te- penetration tester to tell you that you've actually used a function that maybe you shouldn't be using. And then you have to get all, go all the way back to the beginning, fix that up, go through the, another cycle of QA and, and deployment to get it out there. That's much more expensive, takes much more time. So secure coding is really about getting it right the first time round, And it's very small, don't do this, but do that type of advice. Okay, so as an example, first of all, these kind of guidelines exist in all sorts of languages. Uh, usually, if you go through a secure software development training in a, in a big corporation, you'll probably be shown examples in C or Java, or maybe Python, if you're lucky, because Python is maybe a little bit closer to 
something like Elixir or Erlang. But you will barely see Elixir or Erlang examples, of course. But in, in C, you might see something like, don't use SCR-CMP. SCR-CMP compares to strings, and it's, it goes through the string until it finds the null terminator. But if you don't tell C what is the size of your buffer, it, can, it will happily continue after the, past the limit of your buffer, and that's a buffer overflow. So there is another function, strncmp, which takes as an additional parameter the size of your buffer, and then it will stop if it hasn't found the null byte yet that terminates the string. So that's just a safer function of this older standard library function. And if you've got this like in your muscle memory, you don't even dream of typing strcmp. You don't. You just don't. You type strncmp, and that avoids a lot of vulnerabilities just that just there by not using this old function and maybe maybe this old function basically needs to be deprecated it needs to be flagged but not all languages have the right of tooling to to do that so speaking of strings you know like one of the things that i do in elixir all the time is that i'm so tired of strings i like to make everything atoms <laughs> all i do is is create web forms for people to give me information so i just turn all that stuff into atoms is that is that okay is that okay to leave strings behind and go into a atom only world yeah, that would be a much better world, wouldn't it? <laughs> no, but I, I'm sure you are aware of the problem of atom exhaustion. Uh, so that's one of the examples, of course, in the secure coding guidelines. Yeah. And again, this is an example where you can show the, the wrong function to call and the right function to call. Now, it's not always so black or white. It's not always you cannot possibly use this function. You must only ever use that function. So the string to atom function, which you were alluding to, it takes... Some, some input and just say, okay, I, I'm going to need an atom. If there isn't one already, I'll just create one. And that's fine as long as you, you control the input and you know that you're not going to produce an unlimited number of these, these atoms. But if you use string dot to atom on a, uh, on user input, then that becomes a vulner vulnerability because someone can just iterate over all possible uh, strings and and produce atoms and eventually you'll just hit the atom limit that is set in the VM and the VM will just blow up. This is one of the cases where like the the let it the airline takes maybe let it crash a little bit too far and say okay if <laughs> if you exceed the atom limit then we're then we're just going to give up. It doesn't even give you an option to gracefully recover from that. So string to existing atom can can work can help. But there are just also use cases where you can't be sure that the atom uh, already exists. For example, if you're doing XML parsing, mm. this, the standard XML parser of, that's built into the Erlang standard library produces atoms from tag names, XML tag names and attributes. And you know, if you know the schema of your XML document, then maybe you can be reasonably sure that you're only, only ever going to see certain values, but then you would still have to Make sure that those atoms have been defined up front before you can really rely on string to existing atom. That, that so there, there's a challenge here. There's, it's it's not entirely black or white, but as a, as a first as a first shot, I would say don't use string to atom. Use string to existing atom. And then there are a few other patterns that also produce atoms, which are listed in the document. I want to point out that you know we're talking about preventing atom exhaustion. If you've been in the elixir space for a while, at least, you're like, oh, yeah, I get, I get that. I know that. But what I think is interesting about this particular guide and this particular section of the guide is you're talking about the Erlang way and the Elixir way, but then you're also showing the 
multiple ways it can happen in Elixir. Mm-hmm. How you can use list to existing atom. And like there's a list module function that can turn things into atoms, right? It's like that that's not the one we usually talk about. We're usually always talking about string to atom or string to existing atom. But then there's like module safe concat versus module concat. And like using the safe concat version. I didn't even know about this this function. I've never used module concat. So I didn't even know I could do that. So, (laughs) but like knowing that there's a safe version, but then also showing multiple ways of doing string interpolation that end up becoming into atoms. That's more common, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And then beyond that, it's not just saying use this instead of that, but then there's also this whole little section on, on background that explains why, like, why is this important? And then you talk more about the XML parsing and, you know, with links to documentation and stuff like that. So like, I'm not doing anything with XML parsing, but I can totally see how if I let someone give me an XML document that I'm trying to parse, if that would automatically become potentially a risk, like as you're describing how they, if they can just create custom tags, which you can with XML, and then that could be a vector for a vulnerability. Or not necessarily a vulnerability, but like a, you know, a denial of service. Yes. And th- and then there is also third-party libraries, of course. So the fact that you know not to create atoms from user input doesn't necessarily mean that all the libraries you bring in from Hex or elsewhere have this, apply the same kind of user input hygiene and they might produce atoms if you're not careful. So you have to think this all the way through, I guess. So we can only really cover the the standard library aspects here in the document. We deliberately uh, restricted ourselves to the standard library of Erlang and Elixir. Obviously, you can take this further and say, okay, what about hex packages? Do any of the hex packages have atom exhaustion issues? Which functions in which hex packages should or shouldn't you uh, call? And then uh, the same for all the other topics. It's endless. So we we really didn't want to go there. We wanted to make this specifically about the the standard library, we realize that there is a need for like web applications. People write web applications on the Beam, especially with Phoenix. So this is an area where we are currently looking to produce another, another document where we will summarize or point out some best practices around web applications and how to prevent the most common issues using functionality that's provided by Plug and Phoenix. Also look at some, some of the stuff that's built in into Phoenix already. Like if you if you generate a new, new Phoenix application, uh, just a scaffold application, it, it does kind of a lot of things out of the box pretty well. And that's that's great, of course. I mean, we wouldn't want people to you know, be left with a completely vulnerable application and then have to add everything up then, uh, on top of that themselves. But it also means that for many people, these things are kind of a, a black box. They don't know how CSRF really works. There is this plug called Protect from Forgery, and it does something, and <laughs> that protects me from CSRF issues. But but how does it? And and what what if something doesn't work? What if you do need some cross-site request for some type of application? How can you then open things up slightly so that it will still protect your, the rest of your application? And this particular route is is secured through through other mechanisms. Maybe not using cookies, but rather using an explicit authorization header. So th- these things. Maybe it should be documented somewhere. And, and, and that's something that we are working on. 
uh, are, are you working on that with Holden Willett? Yes. Uh, so what we've so Michael um, he joined the uh, security working group uh, a while ago, and uh, he's one of the contributors to this this document from Paraxial, Michael Lubis. Yeah. Yes. So. And uh, he brought in uh, Holden because uh, we we noticed that Holden produced this this document or this Phoenix Live book that uh, actually incorporates uh, some of the ideas of the secure coding guidelines. Obviously, he wants to go further and 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 talk about web issues as well. I saw there was GraphQL in there, and so we we thought we should team up and and maybe produce some some content together for mutual. Uh, benefit so we reached out to holden and we hope to uh to collaborate on on this document nice um i hope i'm not giving too much away because some of this is still <laughs> hush hush uh, oh, we're, we're, <laughs> we're working on it and look the, the the meetings of the security working group are open to anyone so okay. it's, i mean it's it's not it's not secret as in nobody is allowed to know but i i just need to temper expectations a little bit because it takes a lot of time to produce such documents, um, especially if you want it to be uh, you know, high quality. Uh, it requires a lot of editing. And I, I can't, at this point, I can't promise uh, when or whether it will be available. But we, we do see the need and we, we would like to contribute something to the community. It goes beyond what we do in the standard library here in this document. Granted that, that that might come one day, and that's good. And maybe we'll have uh, all of y'all back to talk about it one winter if that happens. You have the guidelines you know, now, and you've mentioned that you cover the standard library. There, there's several things in there. We, we talked about preventing atom exhaustion, so I'm a little sad we're not in a post-string world <laughs> quite yet. But there's also uh, principles on serialization and deserialization you know, executables, sensitive data, sandboxing, timing attacks. There's... Like this, this is just top level stuff. And we're not, you know, necessarily going to go into the details of all of those things. And that's just about standard library stuff, right? This is all while you're coding. You mentioned it at the top of the episode, there's this whole other category about deployment hardening. We won't get there quite yet, but in the standard library stuff of those, you know, in the guide, is there a couple there that's worth mentioning? Like a, like a today I learned, you know, like what, what's something out there that some folks may not be aware of necessarily. That's, that's a little bit, um, you know, a little, a little bit more specific to Erlang, maybe, or, or Elixir. One thing I think is worth pointing out is, is something you you talked about it with uh, with Michael a couple of weeks ago. It's um, protecting sensitive data, and there are all sorts of ways information can leak. It's just it's it's almost impossible. It's like like uh, whack a mole, right? You you this is actually one of the challenges in in, in of an Erlang or Elixir system, particularly partly also because of immutable data like in in other languages you would maybe if you read a private key and you do something with it afterwards you might zero out the memory and and then release the memory and you would know that the, the, this key no longer lingers in memory in erlang or in the beam you can't do that and that means that that even in a core dump if your application if, if you if an attacker can crash your beam for example through atom exhaustion the core, if a core dump gets written, that core dump might include memory that is just lingering because the garbage collector hasn't hasn't reclaimed it yet, and it might show really sensitive data. Now, this is this is really really hard to prevent. Basically, the only thing you can do is is don't generate core dumps. And we're now actually getting into the deployment hardening, right? 
So don't generate core dumps. Core dumps are generally not very useful on the beam anyway, because by the time that the core dump gets generated, the beam has already done its own internal crash dump thing. And therefore the core dump represents the state after the beam has done its crash dump thing. So the crash dump is maybe more interesting. The crash dump is the beam's core dump. And if you have that, then maybe you don't need a core dump. Okay, hold on. Hold on. Let's back up here. I thought you were talking about the same thing, and then you differentiated the words here. So so there is a core dump and a crash dump. These are two different things. Yeah, a core dump is an operating system feature. Core dump is an operating system feature. Um, any Linux process or, or in many other operating systems, something similar exists. If the process dies in a certain way, it dies an unnatural death, then the operating system might produce a core dump, which basically saves the, the, the state of the process and the, the registers of the processor, uh, memory, and so on. But the beam does something similar, but as an Erlang term, um, it, it, you need the beam and there's an application, the crash dump viewer that comes with the Erlang runtime system. And with that, you can see, they can you know, inspect the, the state of the processes, the Erlang processes that were running at the time of the, cra the crash. That's actually been really helpful to me before because I was parsing XML <laughs> and something was running out of memory uh, and I, I wasn't sure what was running out of memory. So I pulled down the crash dump, which was a journey to get to, by the way, when you're in an deployed environment that's ephemeral and the, the container just disappears into the ether and you have no crash dump then either. So you have to put that on a persistent volume. And then <laughs> anyway, what, what a journey. But the crash dump was actually pretty helpful. It was big, but... It was helpful for me to to trace down what the process was last running, at least when <laughs> when it ran out of memory. And so you're saying that inside of that crash dump, there could be some process state that it gets written to it that could hold keys or other sensitive info. There is a way to flag a process that it has sensitive inf information. Yes, though I must point out that this is not something you should just do like... Like everything sensitive, <laughs> right? Don't don't reach for it uh, too quickly. It uh, when we when we were writing this section at the time, we we were lucky enough to have some OTP members contribute to the guide as well, and they were actually arguing that we shouldn't even include this in the in the document. They said, "Well, it it is for it's for very special use cases." The, I know the use case they had in mind. They they had the use case in mind of a a commercial software that needs to read a, a process, a license file and, and verify the signature on the license file. And if that process is uh, can be introspected using the Erlang debugger, for example, or using crash dumps, then the license verification mechanism can be reverse engineered and, and people can, or can just disable it altogether. And then they can use this commercial software without a license. The, I think that is the main reason for having this flag. Which makes sense when you think of the Erlang history of like running in a router where you're, you know, you are selling a device with the software running inside it. And so people have physical access to the hardware that it's running on. So yeah, that makes that makes sense. Right. So and anyway, the, it's a documented feature. It, it appears in the Erlang documentation. So it's not like we're uh, spilling the beans on something that uh, people shouldn't shouldn't even know about. But we, we agreed to move this to the very end of the list of, of what, how to protect sensitive data. So there are other tools, other ways to protect sensitive data, like the, the inspect protocol. And one nice one, nice thing that's also documented here is, is wrapping secrets in an in a anonymous function. 
in a closure. And because if, if a closure gets written to in an exception, for example, it is just written as a function one, two, three, four, five in this and this module. It doesn't reveal anything about about what's this what's contained within the closure. That's clever. I wouldn't have thought of that. <laughs> yeah. If you want to get the feature out, you just in you just dot and then parentheses, you invoke the, the anonymous function and you get the value that's inside it. There's a lot of great tips here. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the things I just want to call out, which I'm impressed by, is that you're doing this for the Erlang and Elixir. Like it's both ways. It's saying we want to serve both communities equally well because they're both on the beam, right? And I, I think that's really cool. But it's, I can tell it takes a lot of extra work to do it both ways. Yeah, absolutely. I, and, and I mean, we're at the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation. I think one of the founding ideas of it is that as a community, we are stronger together. We need to get together and, and promote the beam as a whole. And it doesn't really matter if someone writes in Erlang or Elixir or Gleam or, or LFE. At the end of the day, we, we we can all benefit from the work that others are doing on the beam, which and we should aim to not not produce these silos, not create silos. So this document is definitely supposed to to serve anyone writing for the beam. And yeah, I'm 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 a little bit ashamed that, for example, in my in my own open source work, I tend to reach for Elixir when I maybe shouldn't. Because it's easy easy enough to call Erlang code from Elixir, not so easy the other way around. For example, the, the biggest library I wrote is called X509. It's for working with certificates and private keys, PEM files, DARE files, this kind of stuff. Uh, the public key module in the Erlang OTP standard library can, can deal with these kind of files, but it's kind of a low-level API, and I wanted to make something a little bit more approachable. And I did that in, Erl in Elixir, and, and someone wrote to me the other day saying, oh, if I, had find, if I had known about this library, I would have started this other project in Elixir rather than Erlang. And, and I, I, I wasn't sure if I was happy to hear that or not, because... Just the effect of decisions, yeah. They shouldn't write in Elixir just because I happen to have this library available only in Elixir. This library should be in Erlang. And there should be a, a very small wrapper that just handles the conversion to, for example, Elixir date-time, because Erlang doesn't have date-time as such. It doesn't have quite the same date-time and uh, calendar functions that, that, that uh, Elixir has. So that maybe should be uh, like a little wrapper where, where it provides some convenience function for Elixir programmers. But the core of the library should have been in Erlang. So, so open telemetry, I think, is largely that all written in Erlang with some light Elixir wrappers, which is very, very smart of them. I've heard uh, other folks say the same thing about like Gleam things, right? That there's lots of stuff in Elixir that they it's harder for them to use in Gleam for the same the same sort of reasons. Because in order to 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 use Elixir, you need the Elixir standard library and therefore the Elixir application. Like you need to bring it in as a dependency. Whereas Erlang, if you have a Beam file. Okay, you can call it. It doesn't like the, you already have the beam and all the standard library that comes with it. So you you are not going to miss any dependencies. But if you if you just drop an Elixir beam file into an Erlang project, that's not going to be enough. You're going to have to bring all of Elixir, including the compiler, for example. One that's one of the things also that if you look at secure coding guidelines for other languages. They often say, don't ship a compiler. <laughs> you don't want to see compiler on your production machine because if an attacker manages to get in, it will give them more tools to do whatever things they're trying to do. 
So don't ship a compiler. But in Elixir, you you have no choice. Erlang, you don't have to ship the compiler. You can ship Beam files, and that's it. But Elixir, the inseparable part of, of Elixir is to have the compiler. For example, you can run, you can use eval to evaluate a string as as code. So that requires a parser and a, and a compiler that can produce bytecode on the fly. Yeah, and you can see how that could be a abused right <laughs> if you if you have access to that then you're like oh, i can just write my own code to do all whatever i want which is another section in the secure coding guidelines is called sandboxing untrusted code because people sometimes like to say what do i have to do to make eval only evaluate stuff that is safe <laughs> because i want to have a little embedded scripting language in my application where you can like kind of where users can kind of code for example an email filter or something as as elixir pseudo code can't i just whitelist the functions that can be called from eval no you can't you can't it's just it's it's madness don't do that just <laughs> use, use lua for example lua is what's created exactly for this purpose you just bind certain lua functions to the functions you want to expose and then the you use lua as the embedded scripting language earlier in our discussion you mentioned this idea of the secure software development lifecycle. i was wondering if you could just talk a little bit more about that and what that means and and how how do we use that Yes. So, uh, like I said, this is a, a, a process that is often implemented at large corporations. They require that every software engineers, engineer goes through a, a training where they talk about the various activities that are mandatory in, in various phases of the software development lifecycle. So, from design, implementation, testing, to deployment and Often this, if in a large, larger enterprise, the, 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 they probably talk about how to, which tools to use, which documentation to use for certain languages, Java or .NET or C. Well, so what, one of the things we set out to do is basically say, okay, what, what is missing in order to do, to implement a secure software development lifecycle for an Erlang or Elixir project? Because not all the activities are uh, language or platform specific. Secure design is something that applies equally to any kind of application, right? In the design phase, you talk about maybe your business logic, like what actors are involved in the application, what, what roles they have, what, what they should or should not be allowed to do. Uh, maybe you'll do threat modeling where you talk about various interfaces and the risks that each interface might pose. But that's still, even though you're talking about things like HTTP as, an, as a protocol, it's still kind of language agnostic. Eventually, you'll get to things like cross-site scripting or other vulnerabilities that need to be addressed at the framework level, and then you will reach for the documentation of that particular framework that you chose. At its essence, the, the design phase is, is generally not a, a language agnostic. Penetration testing is often also, at least for black box testing, it's, it's language agnostic. You, anyone can just go and start poking at a website and say, okay, can I get in? And of course, it helps if you know that the language, that the uh, application was written in a certain language, it, certain attacks are maybe more appropriate, more likely to succeed in, in some languages than in others. But there are certain other activities that are really language specific. So we talked about secure coding, that's obviously language specific. Another area that is language specific is static analysis. In the episode where you talked with Michael, you talked about SoBelow, which is a static analysis tool for Phoenix applications. And you could also look at something like Credo as a, as a static analysis tool. It can also flag certain patterns that may lead to vulnerabilities. It, it's, it's focused on code quality, but what is, what is code quality if not 
a bug in your code or a, a weakness in your code can eventually be a vulnerability, right? So Credo and, and Sobilo, they're static analysis tools. They look at the code before it is compiled, not at runtime, but at compile time, and they try to flag dangerous patterns or bad practices. But these tools are quite limited compared to tools that are available in other languages. So in, in other languages, you have, for example, data flow analysis in, as part of static analysis. They actually check this input flows through the code. It flows through this function, that function. It enters this variable, and then it ends this at this sync. And a sync might be, for example, a database connection where you send a SQL query to the database. And then they say, hey, this user input that you get from a uh, HTTP form ends up here in the SQL query. And it's if you don't escape this properly, that might be a SQL injection vulnerability. And that requires data flow analysis. You have to follow the data through the entire call graph to understand whether this is a real vulnerability or not. And Sobilo and, and Credo, can only they only really look at the AST it's very narrow in a very narrow part of the code. They don't understand how all the various parts of the code interact. So it's it's a best effort, but it doesn't produce nearly as as reliable output as as some of the tools that are available in other languages. So I would I, I wish we could make some progress there in the in for the beam with better static analysis tools, maybe also runtime analysis. So Erlang has very interesting tracing capabilities. So Erlang tracing is a very useful debug tool. You can actually see who calls whom and with which parameters, but maybe you can use that also for to do this data flow analysis at runtime. And then you get something that's called interactive application security testing, as opposed to static testing, and where you basically inject values and see how the how that in, how that impacts the flow of the application the logic of the application and what what gets sent to the database and then you just interactively as a tool not the user but the, the tool will interactively try and drill down to a to a vulnerability so that's that, those are very interesting ideas but unfortunately the security working group doesn't quite have the resources to tackle this like writing a document is one thing but producing such a tool Maybe you know we can encourage people who do have the resources to actually you know, look into this kind of tooling. But I don't think you should hold your breath and expect the working group to to drop such a tool anytime soon. Reminds me of uh, sometimes doctors will do that as a medical like exploration thing. They'll give you the, a dye to drink or something, and <laughs> right. so it shows up on X-rays. <laughs> See where did that go? <laughs> Oh, that, that's an interesting idea for a name for such a tool. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, what do they call it? Contrast fluid or something? Contra it's, yeah, that sounds, that's, yeah, that sounds right. That, that's really fun. We're about out of time, but I do want to talk about how people can get involved. Because you've talked about like, well, there's all these things we'd love to do. You even hinted at some of the things that you're currently working on. But if people do want to get involved and want to be able to help out more, maybe to help branch out in some of those areas that are not currently covered, like uh, talking about maybe more with Phoenix or Cowboy or something where they're wanting to go beyond just the standard library, how can people get involved? Yeah, well, so there's a number of different ways. It's, it doesn't necessarily have to be a product that the, the working group produces. We've had other interactions with people who joined in for a few calls just to maybe verify some ideas or to to get feedback. So there are all sorts of ways in which we can 
maybe get together and, and, and discuss possible contributions one way or another, either people contributing to the, to the working group or the working group actually helping out with something if someone needs some, some feedback. And then there is also the larger foundation who may be able to help in some cases with, with grants. So the, the foundation can issue a grant if there is a, some activity that needs to be done that could benefit the community and that uh, one of the working groups is willing to sponsor saying, yes, we should be doing this. And that this is, it's important that this gets done. And if the foundation can put some money on the table, then this will improve the likelihood of it actually being done. So there are various ways in which the, the working group can help the community and the community can help the working group. So the first thing I think is to, to people should join the, the EEF. That, that's, that's one thing. Once you're in the EEF, you can join the, the Slack server. There is a Slack server for EEF members and it has a security working group channel. So people can reach out through there. We announce our monthly meetings there and anyone is welcome to join the meeting and to listen in and if they want to contribute something, if they want to raise a topic, they're also welcome to do so. And finally, people can reach out to existing working group members such as myself and I will be happy to direct them to the appropriate places. Awesome. And I realize that a lot of this, the work that you're currently doing, you know, this is, I assume you're not sponsored time. Like this is not that you're not being paid for your time that you're spending on this, but this is... I am actually, like, the, the Blue Coat is, uh, is kind enough to let me work a part of my day job time on community work, including open source and uh, foundation. So that's only a limited amount of time. And, you know, obviously sometimes these things take more time and I have to do some uh, more work in my spare time. But uh, it, it there is a, a large chunk of it is actually... Uh, I can have my employer to thank for being able to do that. That's great. Thank you, Brom, for talking with us and helping us understand better what's going on at the security working group and the types of initiatives there, but also just being aware of the resources that have already been created that are already available for us to look at and to familiarize ourselves with so we have a better chance of building applications that will stand up better and you know be more secure. Thank you very much for talking with us. Thank you for having me. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.